Well, good morning. Uh, today I'm going to talk about diabetes and uh, how it is uh, running rampant through much of the world. Um, I'm going to introduce it and then look at it as a, a phenomenon that is, has a deep history, its relationships to aspects of the food system, why some societies have become predisposed to it in recent times, and then <clears throat> to consider its interaction with a range of, of uh, other disorders, moving on to metabolic syndrome, as it's called. But actually, it's part of a larger uh, systemic um, issue. So, by way of introduction, something that you all know, something that uh, we all live with, uh, that it's a chronic disease, and chronic diseases may have biological predispositions and environmental triggers, as a general thing. Jane Wardle said that last night, um, so you know, I believe her because she's amazing. Um, the kind of food we eat, man versus food, motor cars that often move less than people move, and modern lives. But there's another aspect to it which I kind of got wrapped up with at an early stage of my career, um, which is the sudden identification in this shanty town in Port Moresby, which is the capital of Papua New Guinea. It's one example of many, but it's, it's one particular example. And the paper was, that came out of, out of the work in one together, I knew one diabetologist who was working at Port Moresby General Hospital, and he was saying, look, you know, take a look at Wanigela. So I did, I went down with him, went down there, and we started talking about chronic disease and type 2 diabetes. Um, in a way, it was one of the things that moved me towards thinking about obesity, because it was happening in unexpected places. So it was the extraordinary prevalence of non-insulin-dependent diabetes and bimodal plasma glucose distribution in the Wanigela people of Papua New Guinea. So age-standardized prevalence of non-insulin-dependent diabetes, 27% in men and 33% in females. In addition, taking it up to over half of the adult population uh, had impaired glucose tolerance. Half the population. This would be scandalous in the West. If you found it in any subpopulation, it would be scandalous. It would be outrageous. <clears throat> Previous work to that point had been in Arizona among Pima. And Pima um, are a group of people that are split by a national border. So there's Pima in Arizona, there's Pima in Mexico. And Pima in Mexico are now catching up with the Pima in Arizona. But for a long time, there was a very clear division in rates of obesity, type 2 diabetes, and so on. And Pima in, in Arizona are sedentized in a very extreme way, um, have a very uh, poor life force and life history, and higher than Nauruans, even though Nauruans were at that stage already more obese. So there's that. And there's a slide that I showed in the very first lecture, 
which showed the interrelationality of most chronic diseases, in this case in relation to nutrition. <laughs> and I put a circle around glucose toxicity, high glucose intake, insulin resistance, hypertension, microvascular damage, all of these things leading ultimately <coughs> to the issues <coughs> associated with type 2 diabetes. People don't necessarily die of type 2 diabetes, but it can be chronically debilitating. I'll give the example of one um, uh, of a surgeon who was in Perth, Western Australia. Once a year, he would have an amputation visit to the Torres Strait Islands, to Thursday Island, where all the years, diabetes, complication, amputees, potential amputees, were lined up for several days of surgery. So he just had an amputation surgery that ran over, over a number of days. And this was because of poorly managed or not managed type 2 diabetes. Now, this type 2 diabetes is related to a lot of other things as well. And, and, and so, you know, because there's microvascular damage, it has implications also for coronary heart disease um, and, and hypertension and so on, and stroke. So it doesn't sit as an independent entity if one takes a systems approach to it. Okay, I'm going to start to describe what diabetes is very quickly and do a quick Cook's tour through what it is. You can find all this stuff, but I think a quick summary is a good thing because I at least know the terms of reference. First of all, diabetes can be divided into several types. You know this already, I'm sure. Type 2 diabetes, we're concentrating on is adult or later onset diabetes. It's related to obesity, physical inactivity, diets that are high in refined carbohydrates. Type 1 diabetes is much more genetically related, although in both of them there are gene-environment interactions, of course. But it's possible to be a young child with type 1 diabetes. It's highly unlikely that you would find a young child with type 2 diabetes. It's something that is progressive across age. Then there's gestational diabetes. That is, if a woman's diabetic, she may give birth to a child who is, is, also, um, is also diabetic. And this happens in places like Nauru in the Pacific and the Cook Islands, for example. When children are born to diabetic mothers, their sugar supply Nutrient supply in utero is fantastic to the point that babies can be huge at birth. And this is a problem not of small birth size, but of large birth size. So uh, it's something that happens in a small proportion of, of pregnancies. Okay, so what is it? Very quickly, a deficiency of insulin or decreased physiological responses to insulin at the cellular level. So insulin is a very powerful hormone. It's broadly and powerfully anabolic. That means... It is a building hormone. If there's a Bob the Builder in the endocrine system, it is insulin. Can he fix it? Yes, he can. Let's see where I get my <laughs> resources from. Uh, it's not just important in um, <coughs> building of cellular materials, but it's functionally important in the uptake of glucose. That is fueling energy and protein synthesis in the cell, and also fat storage. So everything that involves building 
cells, maintaining cells, insulin is there. Uncontrolled diabetes um, is when glucose remains unutilized in the bloodstream. So there's excessive non-enzymatic glycation of hemoglobin. That is, excessive glucose has to do something. So you get glycation of hemoglobin, creating a different um, uh, 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 form of hemoglobin, which is these days used in a lot of cases analytically. So you measure HB1AC, which is a glycated hemoglobin, as a direct marker of, uh, of, of diabetes. The important thing for us is that, as with undernutrition, as with Koshyorkor, oxidative stress leads to, to vascular damage. It's the vascular damage that leads to, to, to the disease. What's its life course? Well, this is a typical kind of life course. So prevalences are very low in the, in the, in the 20s, starts to increase, 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 and, and, and probably you know, carries on across all the lives of life. And the greatest rate of increase is in people among in their 50s and 60s. That's in the year 2000. What's happening is this curve has been pushed back. And there are places where this curve has been pushed right back to the point where there are prevalence of diabetes in people between the age of 15 and 20 is already of serious public health concern. That's true in the United States, for example. Um, so it's got a clear um, age progression. The age progression in so-called developed countries is very clear. The older you get, the more likely you are to contract diabetes. If you compound, if you put together much of the, the, the developing world, the diabetes rates, the way is much earlier. It's in people between the age of 45 and 65. So it's pushing through at an earlier age. And there are, there are good reasons for that, and I'll talk, I'll, I'll talk about that very shortly. Okay, on top of this is a classic slide that I've used since 1805. And the principles haven't changed, so I stay with my fond slide. It used to be a transparency, and then put it onto a. Onto a uh, I spent a time, you never remembered diazos. You know? There were slides, they were called diazos, so they were white type on blue backgrounds. You leave them long enough, they start fading. If you use the slides off enough, they start cracking. And when they crack, you know this is a vintage slide because it's faded, it's not blue, the white's still there, there's cracks all over the place. And I get really fond of those slides. I actually went through a period of creating fake diazo PowerPoint presentations. So I can be, I can be, I can be truly nostalgic. Um, okay, two aspects to this. Insulin resistance and insulin deficiency. Two hallmark signs of progression of, of type 2 diabetes. There are genetic susceptibilities which are constantly increasing. The genetic susceptibilities are directly in relation to diabetes, but also in relation to obesity. Some of the genes that have been linked to diabetes phenotypes have also been related to genetic to, to obesity phenotypes. So the, the, the relationships are clear at that very fundamental level. Uh, the process is... It can start in one of two directions, or both in tandem. Depends where you are. If your environmental triggers are low, then genetic susceptibilities will be more important. That is, the people who become diabetic in places that 
people are not exposed to refined carbohydrates in huge quantity, the genetics will be more important. The people who will present with type 2 diabetes will be those who have greater genetic susceptibilities in the first instance. So the route would be through insulin resistance, through all this cellular physiology, declining glucose transport, hyperglycemia, um, impaired beta cell function. But whether it, if it starts with insulin resistance, it will lead to insulin deficiency at some stage. If you start with glucose toxicity, which is a controversial term, the idea that we consume huge amounts of sugar in forms that are not natural, shall we say. We consume sugar as a chemical, not a constituent of an apple or a pear or an orange or whatever it might be. Um, that consuming huge amounts of glucose across a long period of time will lead to insulin deficiency. Declining glucose-induced insulin secretion and so on, and then this will feed back through to insulin resistance. So both processes, however they start, will then become self-reinforcing. And at the bottom here, I've just put a timeline because this is a thing that is cycling through time. Like the relationships between undernutrition and infection. It's not a circle, it's a corkscrew. It's something that is cycling and cycling and cycling through life. <laughs> and one way of, of, of slowing down the cycling is you can't change genetic susceptibilities, but you can change environmental triggers. You can stop eating sugar. You can stop eating refined carbohydrates. So you can you can you can hold you can hold you can hold this back. So the life history, genes, um, imprinting genes, so epigenetics, um, developmental programming associated with insulin resistance, impaired glucose tolerance, and then complications that go with microvascular damage across uh, into uh, into adult life. If one thinks about those two kinds. Um, insulin sensitivity versus insulin resistance um, then in the United States there's only a minority of diabetics who um, are either one or the other the majority present with both that is both of those both of those cycles are operating so most people who are type 2 diabetic in the United States, both insulin resistant and have insulin deficiency. Both of those things operating in tandem. And of course, the older you get, the more likely it is to be both. So younger people are likely, more likely to present with one or the other. Okay, moving to clinical windows, because this is hugely, potentially quite ambiguous. <clears throat> Microvascular complications, macrovascular complications take place across a number of years, sometimes often decades. So impaired glucose tolerance kicks in, insulin resistance kicks in, hepatic glucose production starts to start, starts to increase, and then fasting blood glucose, this accumulation of glucose in the blood because of either um, insulin sufficiency or insulin resistance, uh, steadily rises. So the question is, along this continuum, where do you say this is where you need to put the cutoff point? And anybody who is diabetic would, is likely to have had this conversation about 
you know, what is the cutoff point for, 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 for diabetes? Um, straightforwardly, the cutoff point for diabetes, I'll talk about it in just a second, but I'll just uh, mention this microvascular damage. Um, I've taken glucose, I've ended thelo cells in blood vessels, which are not insulin, they're not insulin dependent, increases oxidative stress, thickens and weakens the basement, uh, basement membrane, and you get microvascular damage of small blood vessels, leading to things like retinopathy, neuropathy, feet and hands, that is. Um, uh, nephropathy, cardiopathy. So the presentation of type 2 diabetes can be straightforwardly in terms of diabetic blindness or not being able to feel things with your hands and feet. That's not necessarily a problem, but if you're walking around in your bare feet on Thursday Island, the Trust Strait Islands, you're walking along the beach and you find a smashed beer bottle and you've just trodden on it, if you can't feel your feet, you say, didn't feel thick to move, didn't even notice. So the amputations that come with um, type 2 diabetes are much, are quite similar, can be analogous to the problems with leprosy where you have no sensation in your hands and feet. So if you're cooking on an open fire, you won't feel the fact that something's hot. You pick up a saucepan and say, well, it's fine, you don't feel it. But actually it's burning your hand. Then you burn your hand, and you don't have it treated. Then it goes gangrenous. It goes septic. It moves up your arm, and then before you know it, you have to get your arm chopped off, or it will infect the rest of your body. Anybody here had a tropical ulcer? No. Never get one. I have a war wound, which I will not show you, it is on my leg. It was a tropical ulcer I contracted when I fell off a motorbike in Papua New Guinea into mud and I got a burning exhaust pipe on my leg. And I went to get it treated and it took a year to heal as it kept growing. As it was infected with who knows what kinds of, kinds of, uh, kinds of bacteria and the infection grew and grew. And it's not uncommon for people from a very straightforward, simple wound, if it's not treated, for it to go, for it to go gangrenous. Something we don't think about anymore, oddly enough. But these things still happen. Macrovascular damage is associated with things like coronary artery disease and myocardial infarction and stroke. So at those two levels. So bottom line, blindness, kidney failure, amputation, cardiovascular disease... Pregnancy complications and fetal death, all of these things to do with diabetes. Not trivial. Diagnostic criteria, a number of these. And the World Health Organization has put out uh, a set of these, a set of these measures. Fasting plasma glucose. That is, you just take a, a blood sample, and if it's more than 106 milli, uh, milligrams per deciliter, then it's diagnosed as, as, as diabetic. Better still, oral, oral glucose tolerance test. You get somebody to fast, and then you get them to eat the clinical equivalent of a Mars bar, and then um, you measure how quickly their plasma glucose goes down. If it doesn't go down very quickly, then you don't have very good control of your glucose metabolism. Or glycated hemoglobin. Uh, and this is the 
gold standard method that the World Health Organization is, is promoting now. So there are cutoffs for, for all of these diabetes, pre-diabetes, normal, you get these slides if you don't have them already. Much as you think about body mass index, you think about diabetes would be how you think about BMI more than 30, pre-diabetes would be how you would think about overweight body mass index between 25 and 30. So there are these kinds of things. The cutoffs are put at a certain place in relation to something like morbidity and mortality. So mortality risk in the United States where there's a steady increase um, uh, in, in mortality. Relationship between glycosylated hemoglobin and microvascular damage and microvascular complications. You see, in both of these cases, the cutoff point might be set here, where there's a steady increase. There's nothing to say you shouldn't set the cutoff point lower or higher. The question is, what is the appropriate level for um, appropriate public health action? and appropriate, appropriate individual level action. Okay, now everybody's gone to sleep. Um, we'll get on to the interesting stuff. And I'm going to talk about sugar and diabetes. Historical descriptions of diabetes are quite ancient. The idea of polyuria, um, peeing a lot, urinating a lot. It's and people with type 2 diabetes are more likely to be polyuric and then if you examine the urine if you ever get to this point the urine is sweet. How do you get to the point of tea? There's probably there's probably a subcategory of, of, of clinician in ancient Egypt that did urine testing. Uh, probably urine tasting. Uh, before uh, in, 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 in bygone days. Honey urine in India. In Cappadocia, there's a number of, number, of, num, number, of, number of descriptions. The interesting thing is that a lot of these descriptions come from South Asia and beyond the limits of South Asia. Sugar is usually associated with colonialism. You usually associate sugar and the quest for sweetness uh, with the slave trade, the development of sugar and its plantations in the Caribbean, and the rest is history. And that history continues to define us. But sugar refining was something that the, uh, uh, was already in place in India by the 4th century. Being able to refine sugarcane by taking the juice, boiling it down, and so on. It was already well in place. So what happened? British went into India, said, this is an interesting technology. We can take it somewhere else. Um, we can take the idea of sweetness to a place that is uh, a blank canvas to us, colonially. And we can take the crop, and we can move it to somewhere else in the world, and we can industrialize the process. Sydney Mintz, M-I-N-T-Z, at Johns Hopkins, has written about sweetness and power. It's 1985. It's a classic. It's still worth reading. It's still worth reading just the first chapter, if you don't get beyond the first chapter, because he talks about uh, the, the, the drum he's banging this one is that 
Before the Industrial Revolution, there was already industrialization happening in the colonies. And there was an industrialization, a rural industrialization of uh, agricultural processes like sugarcane production. So that's what the Brits did. Took something that was a small-scale uh, village economy to an industrial scale in the Caribbean. So uh, we can all blame it on the Brits. Goes on and on. Um, Arab production for Middle Eastern Europe was, in the 10th to 16th century, was in place. Largely medicinally, sugar was a medicinal compound. Its vestiges are still to be seen in the, in the sugary syrups, that you, cough syrups that you give to young children to, to persuade them to, to consume something nasty, as far as they perceive them. And then they get addicted to Calpol. Do you know what Calpol is? Yeah. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it became an item of privileged consumption. There's somebody constructing a sugar palace. Elizabeth I, you don't see any portraits of Elizabeth I smiling. Does anybody know why? Her teeth were black. Yeah. Her teeth were black. Her teeth were black from consuming sugar. <coughs> because he, she loved sugar. And it was an item of, you know, there were you know, sugar banquets where they would produce sugar palaces on the table that would be consumed because, A, there was a huge investment in getting the sugar there, a huge investment in producing an elaborate construction and then conspicuously consuming it when nobody else could have this very rare, prestigious commodity. But what changed was the industrialization of the process uh, meant that it became something that filtered through to the middle classes and then filtered through to the working classes. As prestigious commodities do, they start off as being items of prestigious consumption and then in market economies they become items of common consumption. So in the 17th century, there was increasing emergence of diabetes among the wealthy merchant classes on the rise because of good fellowship and guzzling down of wine, Thomas Willis, the physician to King Charles II. So, then it rolls downhill. These two pictures are up there. Perhaps you've never thought about this. This is Tate and Lyle, which is the major sugar refiner and manufacturer. You go to a, to a shop and you pick up a bag of Tate and Lyle sugar. The Tate of Tate and Lyle was a benefactor for the Tate Galleries. The Tate Galleries were started by slave trade money. I don't want you to stop going to the Tate Galleries, but I think it's useful to know um, that, 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 that these, things, these things have a history. Okay, from the 17th century, industrial production of sugar... As the demand increased, there wasn't enough in the Caribbean. So sugar beet in Europe, new technology emerged to produce sugar more locally. The present day, most of the sugar in the UK now, I don't know if it's most, but a huge proportion of the sugar in the UK, is produced from sugar beet. And if you go to the area around Cambridge and go into the rural countryside, then it's sugar beet country, and the refining for sugar is all in that, in, 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 in that, in, in that area. Consumption multiplies, 
price falls, and became a common food in the 18th century, and then penetrated all parts of the world. Again, through colonialism, if you create the taste for sugar, people will want it, and it's something that people will trade for. So then you start to develop this, this set, of, set of, uh, of relationships whereby you start seeing aspects of the Western food system as it's developing already penetrating the colonial world. This modernization of diet isn't something that just happened in the last 50 or 60 years. It really has a much deeper history. And I think it's very important to be able to place things in a colonial context if you're looking at a country that has been colonized because it's set up structures that persist in visible or invisible ways to the present day. So then you get waves. First of all in Europe, then obesity and diabetes among middle classes and urban populations in developing countries from the 1920s, South Africa, Kenya, the Pacific Islands starts to emerge. Then rapidly emerging nations, post-1950s, Malaysia, Brazil, but also migrant populations in the United States to Canada, the UK, and um, indigenous populations in the United States, in Australia, in Canada, from the 1950s onwards. So there's a wave upon wave of increasing levels of, of, uh, of type 2 diabetes. And then it starts to infiltrate the remoter corners. Post-1975 in Papua New Guinea, with the Wanagela, as I, as I explained. And then in the 1970s, we get another kick to the story with, with high fructose corn syrup. And high fructose corn syrup um, has been shown to have an independent type 2 diabetes risk in addition to that of sugar. Um, in the remoter places, this is, this, is, this is Australia, obesity, type 2 diabetes. You find it in the remotest places because you can go to a place like the Sands Kiosk in the Northern Territory... And, yeah, there's a lot of sand. There's no beach. There's a lot of sand. And, of course, you get pies, pasties, sausage rolls, hot dogs, chips, donuts, tea and coffee. Yeah, it's all, you know, most of it. We don't deliver on everything, but you can, get, you can get most things. The thing about a remote place in Australia is the things that you find in a small trade store are the things that do not perish. So things that are high in sugar, high in fat, high in salt, that are canned, that can sit on the shelf for six months, will get there. There have been serious attempts to increase the fresh fruit and vegetable supply to remote parts of Australia, and many of them fail because it's so difficult to establish a good supply line. You actually need an infrastructure of freezers, of an adequate income for people to buy things because vegetables become very expensive if you have to ship them long distances. And so the market isn't there. The market can't support it. And so it's all very half-hearted in the, in, in the way that, uh, in the way that uh, it, it's supplied. Okay, that's the one I want. I've talked about waves of diabetes. And I talked previously about waves of obesity and this picture just shows the rising tide of obesity at the stock in the United States from 1994 to 2010. And then below it, uh, okay, the redder it gets, the higher it is. And below it, the wave that follows the obesity wave, which 
sits something like maybe 15, 20 years behind, behind the wave of obesity. So obesity increases, the next thing that happens is the rates, you'd anticipate the, the rates of type 2 diabetes to be following a similar shaped curve, but lagged by about 15 to 20 years. And that is a common pattern. That's the same as that one. This is what's also happening in places like India and China. I've talked about obesity in Calcutta at the Indian Statistical Institute, which is a big place where they collect sociodemographic and health data for the whole of India, huge data sets. And nobody thought it in the least amusing. Calcutta has a diabetes hospital, a major westernized, modern, very modern facility, which does very good business. I've been to Dhaka in Bangladesh, which similarly has a diabetes hospital, which could compare to any diabetes hospital in Europe. In places that still have major problems of poverty and undernutrition, and what's happening is the middle classes are starting to develop new diseases, and health budgets are being diverted towards those particular new problems. Can you deny people treatment for type 2 diabetes? It's a moral dilemma. Can't deny anybody anything. But, you know, there are political, economic, political, ecological issues that go with how these disease patterns are creating more underdevelopment, if you will, for the poorer people in those societies. So, in the year 2000, most of the world's diabetics were in India and China. No, not the United States, India and China. Their proportions, their prevalence may be much lower, but in absolute numbers, many, many more. And also, India is the country where the rates are increasing the fastest for a number of reasons. Uh, there's probably a genetic predisposition. There's different um, um, fat patterning among people from South Asia. They carry different metabolic risk according to, to, uh, to, to their fat patterning. Uh, there's more low birth weight, and as birth weight increases, you have the metabolic imprinting uh, possibility of increasing risk of type 2 diabetes. So a whole number of issues why this is happening. That more or less repeats what I've said. Okay. The modernization discourse is rather confused. It's confused because, on the one hand, we know that increasing affluence and industrialization of diet, decline in physical activity, obesity, formula feeding of infants, all of these things create circumstances for the emergence of of type 2 diabetes. Then you have the discourse of thrifty genotype, an evolutionary basis for efficient metabolism of some groups. So, for example, perhaps a greater genetic predisposition among Pacific Islanders and among indigenous Australians, indigenous Americans, and so on. So the thrifty genotype idea has persisted since the 1960s, but it becomes quite difficult to actually say what a thrifty gene might be. Because, as you know, genetics has gone more complicated. Um, in a condition that is multifactorial, polygenic, um, it's difficult to attribute risk to any particular gene or sets of genes. 
Then there's the thrifty phenotype idea that um, developmental programming and epigenetics being born at low birth weight, having had issues in pregnancy, then predisposed to greater risk in later life. So two of these things going on. And of course, with modernization, birth weight increases, environmental exposure changes. So all of these potentially come together. Oh, God. Genome-wide studies of type 2 diabetes. Um, This is to 2010. And um, it suggests a cluster of of genes that are associated with type 2 diabetes. The numbers are increasing. And one can't really look to any particular uh, particular genotype. Rather, one should be looking towards networks of genes in relation to, to, um, to uh, type 2 diabetes risk. Okay, models of genetic predisposition exist, and here's one that puts together nine genes um, that relate to insulin secretion, insulin resistance. Uh, through reduced beta cell mass, beta cell dysfunction, obesity, and insulin resistance, leading to, respectively, reduced insulin secretion and uh, um, increased insulin resistance. So the predisposition type of diabetes. All you know is whatever... I don't know how much of this explains, how much of type 2 diabetes is explained by this model, but I learned yesterday that the genetic models for obesity explain... 5% 5% of all known variation in obesity at the present moment. So while there might be you know, some sense that there is a genetic predisposition, uh, and it must be much bigger than that, um, the genetics are not catching very much of it. The type 2 high prevalence of diabetes in specific, uh, specific Pacific Islands... Um, This is, uh, I think this is Nauru. Nauru. Uh, it was demonstrated in the 1950s. The um, number of known diabetics, number of new diabetics, with a survey, they actually found a lot of people who didn't know they were diabetic. And the first explanations of type 2 diabetes with a thrifty genotype idea were in the Pacific to try and explain why there were such extraordinarily high um, proportions of the population diabetic, 34%. I was going to say the Cooks, but Cooks is 25%. So, um, Increasing everywhere among Native Americans, Pacific Islanders, Australian Aboriginal people, Maori, all of these groups have gone through this kind of very rapid, imposed uh, modernization where people move from hunter-gatherer diets to, and uh, traditional diets to, to more Western diets. Okay, Robert Lustig, and there's a YouTube clip called Sugar, the Bitter, Bitter Truth. Um, it's worth a quick look, um, where he's very passionately arguing about why sugar is not a food. A pure chemical extracted from plant sources, purer than cocaine, which it resembles in many ways in some of its addictive properties... Um, sugar is mildly addictive, they claim, um, with about the tenth of the strength of, of, of cocaine in terms of its uh, addictive properties, but I'll talk about that next term. And, uh, uh, and there's a desire for it because it is palatable and because people want more of it. 
This is a paper that we put out on high fructose corn syrup and diabetes prevalence, uh, a global perspective, and uh, we showed the additional risk of type 2 diabetes in addition to um, total sugar consumption and controlling for uh, body mass index, obesity, and consumption of other refined carbohydrates. An effect that stayed there, um, and to the point that the Sugar Corn Refiners Association of the United States... um, claimed this study to be flawed on 20-plus counts and voiced their objections to the New York Times before the embargo on the paper was broken. So the New York Times broke embargo on that. And I consider that to be a result because the sugar refi- the corn refiners are under threat because there's a huge reaction to the consumption of high-fructose corn syrup in the United States. And they're having to demonstrate that their product is, is, is healthy and safe. And so the first thing that happens is a refutation of evidence, which is what happened with the, with the smoking, uh, uh, with, with, with the uh, uh, anti-smoking uh, campaigns in the early days. Discredit the evidence and then you, you, remain, you remain strong. Anyway, moving on. The metabolic imprinting and epigenetics have been talked about that low birth weight um, contributes to type 2 diabetes risk um, through a range of, uh, a range of ways, um, through differential development in the, of um, uh, beta cell mass and secretory capacity, change in insulin sensitivity in the, in the muscle, increased lipid oxidation and so on, um, increasing uh, uh, glucose intolerance and increasing insulin resistance. Um, epigenetics um, is... Uh, DNA methylation, the imprinting of, of, uh, of genes in an early stage too predisposed to type 2 diabetes. And there is a paper which I will not bore you with because it will take too much time, but if you find this fun, please work through it. Uh, Sukiyan et al. 2013 that links um, uh, metabolic imprinting with epigenetics um, through, through systems biology. So they've set a separate fields and they're starting to converge as one field, um, as, as, as a, a similar kind of more larger, more complex predisposition. So work through it yourself. Overnutrition also increases, um, in utero, also increases um, uh, type 2 diabetes risk. So maternal overnutrition and obesity is associated with beta cell dysfunction, hyperphagia, wanting to eat a lot, reduced skeletal muscle mass, um, hypertrophy of adipose tissue, and so on, which all lead to, to insulin resistance. So in the Pacific, um, the fact that there are large mothers producing large babies is contributing to type 2 diabetes risk, independently of whether there's a genetic predisposition or not. There's several pathways to type 2 diabetes. And the complication in thinking about type 2 diabetes is that there are multiple path- pathways and multiple dependent pathway dependencies of the production of diabetes. In different places, there will be different things, uh, now different things coming together and different things happening. Beyond the food and uh, interactions and interdependency with other disorders. So, diabetes and obesity are linked to the point that some people talk about diabetes. It may not just be about obesity, though. 
it may be about how an individual becomes obese. So we start off with the composition of food that's consumed. So if you consume food that is low in fibre, then the glycemic response of the food you consume is going to be high. Something that has a high glycemic index, you eat it, it goes straight into the bloodstream. That famous Mars bar, again, you consume it straight into the bloodstream. It's okay if you've done a lot of physical activity and you are craving carbohydrate because you're feeling weak because you've just run a half marathon. Um, That's okay. Your your system will deal with it. But if you're not, if you're some stable, um, uh, inactive state, then um, your body has to deal with glucose very, very, very quickly. And that's where you need a very rapid insulin response to be able to pull it all out of the bloodstream. Foods with a, a low GI, foods with a high proportion of fiber release the carbohydrate slowly. Quite a can be quite a difference. But it's a minefield to think about which foods are high GI and which foods are low GI. Okay, here's a test. Is a French baguette low GI or high GI? Okay. Uh, is pasta low GI? You, you're diabetic. <laughs> You've got all your. Come give this lecture. <laughs> you, you probably you you, prob- you need to know this stuff. Um, okay, so you've got you've got the right answers. Pasta is low GI. This is different. The way that carbohydrates processed before it even gets into your mouth um, will change its um, its digestive properties whether it's least slow or fast. So, yeah? What's the difference between white and brown pasta? White and brown pasta. Brown pasta's got more fiber in it. It So so that makes it uh, a lower GI food. It's released more slowly. That fiber uh, fiber, um, uh, is complexed with the starch, and so you have to do more digestive work for it to be be released. Whereas... whereas, um, um, something like the flour in a baguette is already it's already three quarters processed uh, be- before you know, be- be- before it hits your stomach, and actually more than three quarters processed because you carry on the processing with with, with chewing. So fibre itself is not just the fact there's fibre in it; it's the fact that the fibre is complexed with the starch and reduces its uh, reduces its uh, its uptake. Here's the baguette. And here's Jenny Brand Miller, Foster and Powell, Jenny Brand Miller, glycemic indices and glycemic loads of various foods. And it, there are some things that really uh, don't fit quite as you might expect them to. Um, and it's because uh, the way the carbohydrates are processed changes how. Um, how they are metabolized. So, um, the Rice Krispies come out at 82, and jelly beans come out at 78. Um, table sugar comes out at 65. There are some things that are actually better metabolized than sugar, even though sugar you think is going to be the standard. And that is horrifying, given that so much of the food that one consumes is already pre-processed by the food industry. The last few minutes, I'll talk about reversal of diabetes and then other complications. There was a beautiful experiment that Karen O'Day carried out in the 1970s, 
in Northern Australia, where she persuaded a group of indigenous Australians to go back to their traditional diet, <coughs> to consume lots of uh, uh, nuts and berries and crabs and fish and all that kind of stuff. And what she found was that you could review, reduce the risk of diabetes just by dietary manipulation, just for two weeks. That they could reduce the uh, serum glucose, serum insulin response uh, in um, type 2 diabetics um, just across two weeks, just by going back to a traditional diet. They could, maybe not back to, 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 to a European level, but could certainly lower um, these, these values. But the problem was that this dietary, this dietary manipulation uh, wasn't what people wanted. At the end of the two weeks, they took uh, the fee that she gave them participating in the experiment and you know, bought a crate of beer and bought some of the usual food and had a party because two weeks on traditional food was just too long for them. Having sampled Western food and its palatability, it was difficult to get back to the lower palatability, the slower food of traditional things like acacia nuts, which you have to gather, which are tedious in, 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 in obtaining, but have um, uh, a low GI and uh, are, do not predispose to, to uh, type 2 diabetes. So <clears throat> having discovered sweetness, it's very difficult to go back. Although if your palate is attuned to a level of sweetness, um, it can be attuned downwards. So, but it takes weeks to attune downwards. That is, you, you know, if any of you decides, has anybody given up sugar for Lent? God, I wasn't expecting anybody to do that. But that's great. That's great. Uh, by stopping sugar, you actually find that your taste for sweetness, you could find sweetness in more subtle foods that you wouldn't have found sweet before. No, absolutely, that's what happens. You find sweetness in things that you wouldn't find sweet before because, because you, you, you uh, become more sensitive to sweetness if you consume less sugar. So you don't have to keep you know, ramping up the amount of sugar. The other way, oddly enough, is uh, Ruzoni gastric bypass, which results in weight loss, which was it's a obesity surgery, basically. And this was a surprise finding a decade ago, that follow-up of individuals who had um, both uh, were both severely obese, body mass index and average of 50. That's huge. Uh, 20 months after the surgery, they'd had a mean weight loss of about 60%, and their mean BMI was 34. Still categorized as obese by you know usual criteria, but from the seriously obese to to, to something within within a more, more manageable range. But the, there was a decreased use of anti-diabetic agents in the patients. 70-90% of them required less insulin. So it's led um, medical agencies to think about obesity surgery as a treatment, a cure for type 2 diabetes. And this is now in the literature as being, you know, a serious possibility. If somebody is obese and type 2 diabetic, 
then you might think about taking on obesity surgery, not necessarily because you quite fit the criteria for obesity surgery, but because it might, might reverse your type 2 diabetes, which is actually more serious than the obesity. Metabolic syndrome, very briefly, is uh, a way of describing a whole range of conditions that cluster together in a smaller proportion of people. Abdominal obesity, obesity around the, the, uh, the uh, waist, um, low HDL cholesterol, high LDL cholesterol, that means the hallmark of uh, coronary heart disease, uh, high blood pressure, insulin resistance or glucose intolerance, pro-elevated C-reactive protein, that means pro-inflammatory. You've got inflammatory processes going on in the body um, in relation to a whole range of these things that are sort of described up here in terms of macrovascular damage and, and, and so on. So increased risk of cardiovascular disease and, and, and type 2 diabetes. The rate is increasing. I tried to get current rates for the world, but it's ambiguous because uh, there were some figures put out about a decade ago, but there are so many different ways that have been suggested. So many different ways in which metabolic syndrome is reported. That's difficult. I've found it difficult. You may be, do better than I do in finding some, some global pattern. Um, but this is for the United States for um, the uh, uh, 90, uh, early, early 1990s to the mid-2000s, the mid showing changes in, um, uh, in metabolic syndrome increasing about 5%, steady increases. Minority population that has risk of most of the chronic diseases in the one person. And... Uh, Factors that contribute to it include the ones I've already talked about, include hypertension, smoking, physical inactivity, abnormal lipid metabolism, family history, so genetics, and, and so on. You can have a look at this. And so all of these things cluster together. A number of ways in which uh, to think about it, um, there are several different, uh, um, different uh, definitions. The criteria are ambiguous. Um, the rationale for the thresholds continues not to be terribly well defined, no clear basis for including or excluding particular cardiovascular risk factors, so it's problematic, except um, a recent paper tried to look at harmonizing metabolic syndrome, so there's an interim statement of the International Diabetes Federation Task Force on Epidemiology and Prevention. So these consensus papers, position papers, are ones that try to say, well, we know there's a problem. We need to find a way of harmonizing the way that we report. This is what happened with body mass index. There's a harmonization in reporting type 2 diabetes, but no harmonization in reporting metabolic syndrome. 